Eric Fellman worked for the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and he went to Hong Kong and wrote about the experience that he had there. This was about 25 years ago. Things were different there, and while he was there, a friend took him down a, a narrow alley to a second-floor flat to meet a man who was recently released from prison in China. And in his travels, he expected that he was going to be asked to carry Bibles and Christian literature into China. Uh, But he was hesitant, and he tried to mask his fear with rationalizations, he said, about legalities and other concerns. So when they got to this flat, a Chinese man in his 60s opened the door His smile was radiant, but his back was bent almost double. He led them to a sparsely furnished room, and a Chinese woman of about the same age came in to serve tea. And as she did so, Fellman said he he couldn't help but notice how she treated him so tenderly and kindly, and she touched him with such affection. And his staring did not go unnoticed because soon they both were giggling. And the friend who had taken him there said, um, you know, don't worry about that. They just wanted you to know it was okay. They're newlyweds in their 60s. And he learned, he's writing in the mid-80s, he learned that they were engaged in 1949 when the man was a student at Nanking Seminary. And on the day of their wedding rehearsal, Chinese communists seized the seminary. They took the students to a hard labor prison. And for the next 30 years, the bride-to-be was allowed to see, was allowed only one visit each year to see her intended. And each time, following their brief minutes together, the man would be called to the warden's office and he would say to the man, you may go home with your bride if you will renounce Christianity. And Year after year, the man replied with one word, no. Feldman said he was stunned. How had he been able to stand the strain for so long being denied his family, his marriage, and even his health. And when he asked, the man seemed astonished at his question. He replied, with all that Jesus has done for me, how could I betray him? The next day, preparing for travels into China, Feldman requested that his suitcase be crammed with Bibles and training literature for the Chinese Christians. He determined not to lie about the materials and yet lost not one minute of sleep worrying about the consequences. His suitcases were not inspected. Well, last week, as Wayne pointed out, we were with Jesus and John the Baptist in the wilderness southeast of Jerusalem. And just prior to today's text from Matthew, Jesus has spent some time in perhaps another wilderness saying no to every temptation that he was offered to deny God. And now, today, having heard of John's arrest, Jesus heads to the starting gate of his ministry, the town of Capernaum, back up north beside the Sea of Galilee, closer to his home territory. So far, Jesus has stood alone 
pretty much. We've seen John the Baptist proclaiming his way, and, but we've seen Jesus baptized, and we've seen him walking by and others following him, according to John. And then today we have Matthew's version of the call of the first disciples. He's preparing us, Matthew and Jesus, but really Matthew, as he's writing his gospel, is preparing us for what we're about to hear in chapters 5 through 7. If you have studied the Bible much, you will know that's the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So here we are, chapter 4, preparing to listen to Jesus' words. We'll begin addressing that next week. In Hungary, where my sister and her family live, it's about one month after the winter solstice, and at 4.30, the sun is setting. The sun has set. So, so darkness begins early in the afternoon and extends late into the morning. The darkness can be overwhelming for people who live in the far north in this time of year. Now, in the north of Israel, the lands of Zebulon and Naphtali, these are the borderlands that were the easiest to conquer by outsiders. And so there was a sense of darkness that lasted not just at nighttime, but every hour of the day. The darkness of oppression, the darkness of waiting for a savior, the darkness of uncertainty. Ever been there? This was the darkness of the land where Jesus walked by the sea and began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, for the king of, kingdom of heaven has come near. A newspaper story told of a man who returned to his car in a parking lot and he found a note underneath the windshield wiper. It read, I have just smashed into your car. The people who saw the accident are watching me. They think I am writing down my name and address. They are wrong. This is a lack of repentance. On the other hand, not too many years ago, newspaper, newspapers carried the story of Al Johnson. He was a Kansas man who came to Jesus Christ, and what made his story so interesting was not the fact that he was converted to Christ, but the fact that as a result of his newfound faith, he confessed to a bank robbery which he, in which he had participated when he was 19. Now, I don't know what age he was, but the statute of limitations had run out, and so he couldn't be prosecuted for the offense, but he believed that his relationship with Jesus demanded a confession. And so he confessed with his mouth, but he confessed also with his deeds. He voluntarily repaid his share of the money that they stole back when he was 19. This man understood that Jesus' call from darkness to light was a call to repent. It was a recognition that the kingdom of heaven had come near. Every time we pray the Lord's Prayer, we pray for God's kingdom to come on earth and as it is in heaven. And yet Jesus is telling us that through him, the kingdom already is here. Another phrase 
he pulls from Isaiah that to me says about the same thing is light has dawned. We're still in the season of Epiphany, the season when we, Epiphany starts with when the wise men follow the star to Jesus, and so we have this theme of light that runs throughout um, these scripture passages as Jesus has come into the world. So light has dawned. These are Isaiah's words. And one translation of the biblical Greek is light sprang up for them. And I, I love that image of the immediacy of the light when we're feeling dark. A teacher asked her class of youngsters, which is more important to us, the moon or the sun? One of the students answered the moon. And the teacher asked why the student thought that moon was more important than the sun. And the student said, the moon gives us light at night when we need it most. The sun just gives us light in the daytime when we don't really need it. (laughs) Faulty logic? Our logic needs a little help sometimes too. When we're groping around in the darkness, sometimes we forget that light has dawned. Light already has sprung up. That darkness for us can be between us and someone we love. The darkness can settle over us when we're unhappy in our jobs. The feeling of darkness can come with health issues, with death, with a general fear about the future. We may feel a darkness when we think beyond ourselves and our own experiences to the many people suffering with AIDS around the world or malnutrition, poverty, poor governance. On Christian Unity Sunday, we're invited to reflect on a hope and a dream about the great changes that can be made when Christians sacrifice some pride and ego to band together around Christ. In a Peanuts cartoon, Lucy demands that Linus change the TV channel, threatening him with her fist if he doesn't. Linus, at first, fights back a little. He says, what makes you think you can walk right in here and take over? These five fingers, says Lucy. Individually, they're nothing, but when I curl them together like this into a single unit, they form a a weapon that is terrible to behold. And Linus says, which channel do you want? And then, turning away, he looks at his fingers and he says, why can't you guys get organized like that? (laughs) When people organize into a single unit, good things happen. Old Southwest Inc., The nearby neighborhood association has a program called Neighbors Helping Neighbors. They'll choose one house where the person inside can't afford to make uh, improvements to the exterior of the house, and they'll gather together on a Saturday and make those improvements. It might be landscaping, it might be scraping paint or painting, but they'll all work together, Neighbors Helping Neighbors. The external benefits are to the house and the homeowner. The internal benefits are to the community of people 
who sacrificed their Saturday, and yet that sacrifice creates a beautiful unity. This is good news. Baptist Friendship House, three blocks away on Elm Avenue, is supported by monetary offerings to the Roanoke Valley Baptist Association. I brought mine so you can see church members, if, if you have a box of envelopes, then you'll find one that looks like this. It's got orange around it, and it's the Annie Mae Broyles offering for Roanoke Valley Baptist Mission offering. And when we give through this envelope to the association, some of that money comes back to the neighborhood. It helps the Baptist Friendship House when they have um, Bible studies for ladies on Tuesdays and Thursdays and after-school programs for children who might be home alone and offering food or offering uh, clothing for people who have needs. So our money and the addition of energy from us and other local churches, with those things, good things happen. Christians are are banded together, not into a, a... unit that, could, that would hurt someone, not intentionally. We, we create, though, a powerful weapon that fights together against maybe the tyranny of evil, maybe bad governance, maybe bad decisions, maybe who knows. But when we band together into that single unit as Christians, good things happen, good news happens. Paul said that Christ didn't call him to baptize people. Christ called him to proclaim the gospel. That word gospel is good news. We're called, too, to proclaim the good news. All of us. Now, we have the stories of Peter Peter and his brother Andrew and James and John. To whom Jesus says, follow me, I'll make you fish for people. And he uses this analogy because these guys are fishermen. One writer suggested that if Jesus ran across a group of people knitting, he might have said, follow me and I will help you knit people together. What would Jesus say to you What's, if you're not a fisherman or a knitter? If you're a cook, maybe he'd say, Follow me and let's feed the hungry. If you're a golfer, he might say, Follow me and let's create our own course. The good news is about unity. It's about coming together around the common goal of bringing near the kingdom of God, the realm of God. Jesus began his ministry with just a few others, five men. And if five men could start such a great chain reaction of telling the good news of the nearness of God's realm, just think what a hundred of us could do together. If not by curling together into a single unit, maybe just by standing together and opening our hands in invitation for people to follow Jesus. The challenge is, I think, is that It involves sacrifice. It involves humility. It involves sometimes doing what 
might be painful for us, but good for others. In the magazine Christian Living, Lafcadio Hearn tells of a Japanese seashore village over 100 years ago where an earthquake startled the villagers one autumn evening. But they were accustomed to earthquakes, and so they soon went back to their activities. Above the village, on a high plain, one old farmer was watching, though, from his house. He looked out at the sea, and the water appeared dark and was acting strangely, moving against the wind, running away from the land, and the old man knew what that meant. And so he thought, how can I warn the people in the village down below? He called to his grandson, bring me a torch, quickly. In the fields behind him lay his great crop of rice. They were piled in stacks, ready for the market. It was worth a fortune. The old man hurried over there with his torch, and in a moment the dry stalks were blazing. And then from the village below, the big bell pealed, fire. And back from the beach, away from the strange sea, up the steep side of the cliff, came the people of the village. They were coming to try to save the crops of their rich neighbor. At the same time they were running, they were saying, he's mad. But they reached the plain, and the old man shouted back at the top of his voice, look! And at the edge of the horizon... They saw a long, lean, dim line, a line that thickened as they gazed. That line was the sea, rising like a high wall and coming more swiftly than a kite flies. Then came a shock, heavier than thunder, where the great swell struck the shore with a weight that sent a shudder through the hills and tore their homes to matchsticks. And it drew back, roaring, and then it struck again and again, and a fourth time, and then once more it struck, and it ebbed, and then it returned to its place. And on the plain at first, no word was spoken. And then the voice of the old man was heard saying gently, that's why I set fire to the rice. He stood among them then, as almost now, as poor as the poorest villager from down below, because his wealth was gone, but he had saved 400 lives by his sacrifice. Oddly enough, sacrifice is good news. The cross that seems so foolish to the world, the sacrifice is really the power of God, the power that now is ours.